Welcome to Sniper's Rest. Sniper's Rest is the last best rest stop in the here and there. The place between where you're coming from and where you're going. Welcome, my friend. Your journey here was no doubt long and tiring. They always are, after all. Oh, how rude of me. I've forgotten to introduce myself. I'm Sniper Shadow, and I reside here at Sniper's Rest as a guide and custodian to those who pass through here. I do visit the worlds within the multiverse often, but I'm always here to guide and care for the travellers such as yourself that pass through the here and there. Please take a rest here before continuing on your journey, and don't mind Frank. He's our resident, uh, creature. But I assure you, he's a vegetarian. I simply provide him with fruits and vegetables from our garden here, and he's quite happy. I'd try not to question it too closely. Today, we begin our very first tale. It was given to me by a recent traveller. I believe he was taken to the skies in search of a new ship. A sentinel ship? Preferably in the Euclid galaxy. I do hope he finds it. They're quite cool looking. This tale was first published in 1895 and made its way into the public domain in October of 2004. This science fiction piece has been crafted into two films, two TV series, and a slew of comic books. It was written by H.G. Wells and is entitled The Time Machine. Let's begin, my friends. Chapter 1 The Time Traveller, for so it will be convenient to speak of him, was expounding a recondite matter to us. His pale grey eyes shone and twinkled, and his usually pale face was flushed and animated. The fire burnt brightly, and the soft radiance of the incandescent lights in the lilies of silver caught the bubbles that flashed and passed in our glasses. Our chairs, being his patents, embraced and caressed us rather than submitted to being sat upon, and there was that luxurious after-dinner atmosphere when thought runs gracefully free of the trammels of precision. And he put it to us in this way, marking points with a lean forefinger, as we sat and lazily admired his earnestness over this new paradox, as we thought it, and his fecundity. You must follow me carefully. I shall have to controvert one or two ideas that are almost universally accepted. The geometry, for instance, they taught you in school, is founded on a misconception. Is it rather not a large thing to expect us to begin upon, said Philby, an argumentative person with red hair? I do not mean to ask you to accept anything without reasonable ground for it. You will soon admit as much as I need from you. You know, of course, that a mathematical line, a line with a thickness of nil, has no real existence. They taught you that. Neither has a mathematical plane. These things are mere abstractions. That is all right, said the psychologist. Nor having only length, breadth and thickness can a cube have a real existence. There I object, said Philby. Of course a solid body may exist. All real things. So most people think. But wait a moment. Can an instantaneous cube exist? Don't follow you, said Philby. Can a cube that does not last for any time at all have a real existence. Philby became pensive. Clearly, the time traveller proceeded, any real body must have an extension in four directions. It must have length, breadth, thickness, and duration. But through the natural infamy of flesh, which I will explain to you in a moment, we incline to overlook this fact. There are really four dimensions, three which we call the three planes of space, and a fourth, time. There is, however, a tendency to draw an unreal distinction between the former three dimensions and the latter, because it happens that our consciousness moves intermittently in one direction along the latter, from the beginning to the end of our lives. That, said a very young man, making spasmodic efforts to relight his cigar over the lamp, that is very clear indeed. Now, 
"'It is very remarkable that this is so extensively overlooked,' continued the time-traveller with a slight accession of cheerfulness. "'Really, this is what is meant by the fourth dimension, though some people who talk about the fourth dimension do not know that they mean it. It is only another way of looking at time. There is no difference between time and any of the other three dimensions of space except that our consciousness moves along it. But some foolish people have gotten hold of the wrong side of that idea.' You have all heard what they have to say about this fourth dimension? I have not, said the provincial mayor. It is simply this, that space, as our mathematicians have it, is spoken of of having three dimensions, which one may call length, breadth and thickness, and is always definable by reference to three planes, each at right angles to the others. But some philosophical people have been asking why three dimensions particularly, why not another direction at right angles to the other three? And have even tried to construct a fourth dimensional geometry. Why Professor Simon Newcomb was expounding this to the New York Mathematical Society only a month or so ago. You know how on a flat surface, which only has two dimensions, we can represent a figure of a three-dimensional solid. And similarly, they think that by models of three dimensions, they could represent one of four, if they could master the perspective of the thing. Do you see? I think so, murmured the provincial mayor, and knitting his brows together, he lapsed into an introspective state, his lips moving as one who repeats mystic words. Yes, I think I see it now, he said, after some time, brightening in a quite transistory manner. Well, I do not mind telling you, I have been at work upon this geometry of four dimensions for some time. Some of my results are curious. For instance, here is a portrait of a man at eight years old, another at fifteen, another at 17, another at 23, and so on. All these are evidently sections, as it were, three-dimensional representations of his four-dimension being, which is a fixed and unalterable thing. Scientific people, proceeded the time-traveller, after the pause required for proper assimilation of this, know very well that time is only a kind of space. Here is a popular scientific diagram, a weather record. This line I trace with my finger shows the movement of the barometer. Yesterday it was so high. Yesterday night it fell. Then this morning it rose again, and so gently upwards to here. Surely the mercury did not trace this line in any of the dimensions of space generally recognised, but certainly traced it such a line, and that line, therefore, we must conclude, was along the time dimension. But said the medical man, staring hard at a coal in the fire. If time is really only a fourth dimension of space, why is it, and why has it always been, regarded as something different? And why can we not move in time as we move about in the other dimensions of space? The time traveller smiled. Are you so sure we can move freely in space? Right and left we can go, backwards and forwards freely enough, and men have always done so. I admit we move freely in two dimensions, but how about up and down? Gravitation limits us there. Not exactly, said the medical man. There are balloons. But before balloons, save for spasmodic jumping and the inequalities of the surface, man had no freedom of vertical movement. Still, they could move a little up and down, said the medical man. Easier, far easier down than up. And you cannot move at all in time. You cannot get away from the present moment. My dear sir, 
that is where you are just wrong. That is just where the whole world has gone wrong. We are always getting away from the present moment. Our mental existences, which are immaterial and have no dimensions, are passing along the time dimension with a uniform velocity from the cradle to the grave, just as we should travel down if we begin our existence 50 miles above the Earth's surface. But the great difficulty is this, interrupted the psychologist. You can move about in all directions of space, but you cannot move about in time. That is the germ of my great discovery. But you are wrong to say we cannot move about in time. For instance, if I am recalling an incident very vividly, I go back to the instance of its occurrence. I become absent-minded, as you say. I jump back for a moment. Of course, we have no means of staying back for any length of time, any more than a savage or an animal has of staying six feet above the ground. But a civilized man is better off than the savage in this respect. He can go up against gravitation in a balloon. And why should he not hope that ultimately he may be able to stop or accelerate his drift along the time dimension or even turn about and travel the other way? Oh, this, began Philby, is all... Why not, said the time traveller. It's against reason, said Philby. What reason? said the time traveller. You can show black is white by argument, said Philby, but you will never convince me. Possibly not, said the time traveller, but now you begin to see the object of my investigations into the geometry of four dimensions. Long ago, I had a vague inkling of a machine. To travel through time, exclaimed the very young man, that shall travel indifferently in any direction of space and time, as the driver determines. Philby contented himself with laughter. But I have experimental verification, said the time traveller. It would be remarkably convenient for the historian, the psychologist suggested. One might travel back and verify the accepted account of the Battle of Hastings, for instance. Don't you think it would attract attention? The medical man said. Our ancestors had no great tolerance for anachronisms. One might get one's Greek from the very lips of Homer and Plato, the very young man thought. In which case they would certainly plough you for the little go. The German scholars have improved Greek so much. Then there is the future, said the very young man. Just think, one might invest all one's money, leave it to accumulated interest, and hurry on ahead. To discover a society, I said, erected on a strictly communicistic basis. Of all the wild and extravagant theories, began the psychologist, Yes, so it seemed to be, and so I never talked of it until... Experimental verification, I cried. Are you going to verify that? The experiment, cried Philby, who was getting brain-weary. Let's see your experiment anyhow, said the psychologist, though it's all humbug, you know. The time traveller smiled round at us. Then, still smiling faintly, and with his hands deep in his trouser pockets, he walked slowly out of the room and we heard his slippers shuffling down the long passage to his laboratory. The psychologist looked at us. Wonder what he's got? Some sleight-of-hand trick or other, said the medical man. And Philby tried to tell us about a conjurer he'd seen in Burslem, but before he had finished his preface, the time-traveller came back, and Philby's antidote collapsed. Chapter 2. The Machine The thing the time-traveller held in his hand was a glittering metallic framework scarcely larger than a small clock, and very delicately made. There was ivory in it, 
and some transparent crystalline substance. Now, I must be explicit for this that follows, unless his explanation is to be accepted, is an absolutely unaccountable thing. He took one of the small octagonal tables that were scattered about the room and sat it in front of the fire, with two legs on the hearthrug. On this table he placed the mechanism. Then he drew up a chair and sat down. The only other object on the table was a small shaded lamp, the bright light of which fell upon the model. There were also perhaps a dozen candles about, two in brass candlesticks upon the mantel and several in sconces, so that the room was brilliantly illuminated. I sat in a low armchair nearest the fire. I drew this forward so as to be almost between the time traveller and the fireplace. Philby sat behind him, looking over his shoulder. The medical man and the provincial mayor watched him in profile from the right, the psychologist from the left. The very young man stood behind the psychologist. We were all on alert. It appears incredible to me that any kind of trick, however subtly conceived and however adroitly done, could have been played upon us under these conditions. The time traveller looked at us, and then at the mechanism. Well, said the psychologist, this little affair, said the time traveller, resting his elbows upon the table and pressing his hands together above the apparatus, is only a model. It is my plan for a machine to travel through time. You will notice that it looks singularly askew, and that there is an odd twinkling appearance about this bar, as though it were in some way unreal. He pointed to the part with his finger. Also here is one little white lever, and here is another. The medical man got up out of his chair and peered into the thing. It's beautifully made, he said. It took two years to make, retorted the time traveller. Then, when we had all imitated the action of the medical man, he said, Now, I want you to clearly understand that this lever, being pressed over, sends the machine gliding into the future, and this other reverses the motion. This saddle represents the seat of a time traveller. Presently, I am going to press the lever, and off the machine will go. It will vanish, pass into future time, and disappear. Have a good look at the thing. Look at the table too, and satisfy yourself that there is no trickery. I don't want to waste this model, and then be told I'm a quack. There was a minute's pause, perhaps. The psychologist seemed to be about to speak to me, but then changed his mind. Then the time traveller put forth his finger towards the lever. No, he said suddenly. Lend me your hand. And turning to the psychologist, he took that individual's hand in his own and told him to put out his forefinger. So that it was, the psychologist himself who sent forth the model time machine on its interminable voyage. We all saw the lever turn. I am absolutely certain that there was no trickery. There was a breath of wind, and the lamp flame jumped. One of the candles on the mantel was blown out, and the little machine suddenly swung round, became indistinct, was seen as a ghost for a second perhaps, as an eddy of faintly glittering brass and ivory, and then it was gone, vanished. Save for the lamp, the table was bare. Everyone was silent for a minute. Then Philby said he was damned. The psychologist recovered from his stupor and suddenly looked under the table. At that, the time traveller laughed cheerfully. Well, he said, with a reminiscence of the psychologist. Then getting up, he went to the tobacco jar on the mantel and with his back to us, began to fill his pipe. We stared at each other. 
Look here, said the medical man. Are you earnest about this? Do you seriously believe that that machine has travelled into time? Certainly, said the time traveller, stooping to light a spill at the fire. Then he turned, lighting his pipe, to look at the psychologist's face. The psychologist, to show that he was not unhinged, helped himself to a cigar and tried to light it uncut. What is more, I have a big machine that's nearly finished, in there. He indicated the laboratory. And when that is put together, I mean to have a journey on my own account. You mean to say that that machine has travelled into the future, said Philby. Into the future or the past. I don't for certain know which. After an interval, the psychologist had an inspiration. It must have gone into the past if it has gone anywhere, he said. Why? asked the time traveller. Because I presume that it has not moved in space, and if it travelled into the future, it would still be here all this time, since it must have travelled through this time. But, said I, if it travelled into the past, it would have been visible when we first came into this room, and last Thursday when we were here, and the Thursday before that, and so forth. Serious objections, remarked the provincial mayor with an air of impartiality turning towards a time traveller. Not a bit, said the time traveller, and to the psychologist, you think. You can explain that. It's a presentation below the threshold. You know, diluted presentation. Of course, said the psychologist, and reassured us. That's a simple point of psychology. I should have thought of it. It's plain enough and helps the paradox delightfully. We cannot see it, nor can we appreciate this machine, any more than we can appreciate the spoke of a wheel spinning or the bullet flying through the air. If it is travelling through time fifty or a hundred times faster than we are, if it gets through a minute while we get through a second, the impression it creates will of course be only one fiftieth or one hundredth of what it would make if it were not travelling through time. That's plain enough. He passed his hand through the space in which the machine had been. You see, he said laughing. We sat and stared at the vacant table for a minute or so. Then the time traveller asked us what we thought of it all. It sounds plausible enough tonight, said the medical man. But wait until tomorrow. Wait for the common sense of morning. Would you like to see the time machine itself? asked the time traveller. And therewith, taking the lamp in his hand, he led the way down the long and draughty corridor to his laboratory. I remember vividly the flickering light, his queer broad head in silhouette, the dance of the shadows, and how we all followed him, puzzled but incredulous, and how there in the laboratory we beheld a larger edition of the little mechanism which we had seen vanish before our eyes. Parts were of nickel, parts of ivory, parts had certainly been sawn or filed out of rock crystal. The thing was generally complete, but the twisted crystalline bars lay unfinished upon the bench beside some sheets of drawings, and I took one up for a better look at it. Quartz, it seemed to be. Look here, said the medical man. Are you perfectly serious? Or is this a trick, like that ghost you showed us last Christmas? Upon that machine, said the time traveller, holding his lamp aloft, I intend to explore time. Is that plain? I was never more serious in my life. None of us quite knew how to take it. I caught Philby's eye over the shoulder of the medical man, and he winked at me solemnly. Chapter 3 The Time Traveller Returns I think that at that time none of us quite believed the time machine. 
The fact is, the time traveller was one of those men who are too clever to be believed. You never felt that you saw all round him. You always suspected some subtle reserve or some ingenuity in ambush behind his lucid frankness. Had Philby shown us the model and explained the matter in the time traveller's words, we should have shown him far less scepticism, for we should have perceived his motives. A pork butcher could understand Philby. But the time traveller had more than a touch of whim amongst his elements, and we distrusted him. Things that would have made the fame of a less clever man seem like tricks in his hands. It is a mistake to do things too easily. The serious people, who took him seriously, never felt quite sure of his deportment. They were somehow aware that trusting their reputations for judgment with him was like furnishing a nursery with eggshell china. So I don't think any of us said very much about time travelling in the interval between that Thursday and the next, though its odd potentialities ran no doubt in most of our minds. Its plausibility, that is, its practical incredibleness, the curious possibilities of anachronism, and the utter confusion it suggested. For my own part, I was particularly preoccupied with the trick of the model. That I remember discussing with the medical man, who I met on Friday at Linnean. He said that he had seen a similar thing at Tabingen, and laid considerable stress on the blowing out of the candle, but how the trick was done he could not explain. The next Thursday, I went again to Richmond. I suppose I was one of the time traveller's most constant guests, and arriving late found four or five men already assembled in his drawing room. The medical man was standing before the fire, with a sheet of paper in one hand and his watch in the other. I looked around for the time traveller, and... It's half past seven now, said the medical man. I suppose we better have dinner? Where's... said I, naming our host. You've just come. It's rather odd. He's unavoidably detained. He asks me in this note to lead off with dinner at seven if he's not back. Says he'll explain when he comes. Seems a pity to let dinner spoil, said the editor of a well-known daily paper, and thereupon the doctor rang the bell. The psychologist was the only person besides the doctor and myself who had attended the previous dinner. The other men were blank, the editor aforementioned, a certain journalist, and another quiet, shy man with a beard, whom I didn't know, and who, as far as my observation went, never opened his mouth all evening. There was some speculation at the dinner table about the time traveller's absence, and I suggested time travelling in a half-jocular spirit. The editor wanted that explained to him, and the psychologist volunteered a wooden account of the ingenious paradox and trick we had witnessed that day week. He was in the midst of his exposition when the door from the corridor opened slowly and without noise. I was facing the door and saw it first. Hello, I said. At last, the door opened wider and the time traveller stood before us. I gave a cry of surprise. Good heavens, man, what's the matter? cried the medical man who saw him next. And a whole tableful turned to the door. He was in an amazing plight. His coat was dusty and dirty and smeared with green down the sleeves, his hair disordered, and it seemed to me greyer, either with dust or dirt or because its colour had actually faded. His face was ghastly pale, his chin had a brown cut on it, a half-heeled cut. His expression was haggard and drawn, as by intense suffering. For a moment 
He hesitated in the doorway, as if he had been dazzled by the light. Then he came into the room. He walked with such a limp, as I have seen in footsore tramps. We stared at him in silence, expecting him to speak. He said not a word, but came painfully to the table, and made a motion towards the wine. The editor filled a glass of champagne, and pushed it towards him. He drained it, and it seemed to do him good, for he looked around the table, and a ghost of his old smile flickered across his face. "'What on earth have you been up to, man?' said the doctor. The time-traveller did not seem to hear. "'Don't let me disturb you,' he said, with a certain faltering articulation. "'I'm all right.' He stopped, held out his glass for more, and took it off at a drought. "'That's good,' he said. His eyes grew brighter, and a faint colour came into his cheeks. His glance flickered over our faces with a dull approval, then went around the warm and comfortable room. Then he spoke again, still as if he were feeling his way among words. "'I'm going to wash and dress, and then I'll come down and explain things. Save me some of that mutton.' I'm starving for a bit of meat. He looked across at the editor, who was a rare visitor, and hoped he was all right. The editor began a question. I'll tell you presently, said the time traveller. I'm funny. Be all right in a minute. He put down his glass and walked towards the staircase door. Again I remarked his lameness and the soft padding sound of his footfall, and standing up in my place, I saw his feet as he went out. He had nothing on them but a pair of tattered, blood-stained socks. Then the door closed upon him. I had half a mind to follow, till I remembered how he detested any fuss about himself. For a minute, perhaps, my mind was wool-gathering. Then remarkable behaviour of an eminent scientist, I heard the editor say, thinking, after his wont in headlines. And this brought my attention back to the bright dinner table. "'What's the game?' said the journalist. Has he been doing the amateur cadger? I don't follow. I met the eye of the psychologist and read my own interpretation in his face. I thought of the time traveller limping painfully upstairs. I don't think anyone else noticed his lameness. The first to recover completely from this surprise was the medical man, who rang the bell, the time traveller hated to have servants waiting at dinner, for a hot plate. At that, the editor turned to his knife and fork with a grunt, and the silent man followed suit. The dinner was resumed. Conversation was exclamatory for a little while, with gaps of wonderment, and then the editor got feverent in his curiosity. Does our friend eke out his modest income with a crossing, or has he his Nebuchadnezzar phases? he inquired. I feel assured it's this business of the time machine, I said, and took up the psychologist's account of our previous meeting. New guests were frankly incredulous. The editor raised objections. What was this time travelling? A man couldn't cover himself with dust by rolling in a paradox, could he? And then, as the idea came home to him, he resorted to caricature. Hadn't they any clothes brushes in the future? The journalist, too, would not believe at any price, and joined the editor in the easy work of heaping ridicule on the whole thing. They were both the new kind of journalist, very joyous, irreverent young men. Our special correspondent in the day after tomorrow reports, the journalist was saying, or rather shouting, when the time traveller came back. He was dressed in ordinary evening clothes, and nothing save his haggard look remained of the change that had startled me. I say, the editor said hilariously, these chaps here say you've been travelling into the middle of next week. 
Tell us all about Little Roseberry, will you? What will you take for the lot? The time traveller came to the place reserved for him without word. He smiled quietly in his old way. Where's my mutton? he said. What a treat it is to stick a fork into meat again. Story, cried the editor. Story be damned, said the time traveller. I want something to eat. I won't say a word until I get some peppertone into my arteries. Thanks. And the salt. One word, said I. Have you been time travelling? Yes, said the time traveller, with his mouth full, nodding his head. I'd give a shilling for a line for a verbatim note, said the editor. The time traveller pushed his glass towards the silent man and rang it with his fingernail, at which the silent man, who had been staring at his face, started convulsively and then poured him wine. The rest of the dinner was uncomfortable. For my own part, sudden questions kept on rising to my lips, and I dare say it was the same with the others. Journalists tried to relieve the tension by telling antidotes of Hetty Potter. The time traveller devoted his attention to his dinner and displayed the appetite of a tramp. The medical man smoked a cigarette and watched the time traveller through his eyelashes. The silent man seemed even more clumsy than usual and drank champagne with regularity and determination out of sheer nervousness. At last, the time traveller pushed his plate away and looked round us. I suppose I must apologise, he said. I was simply starving. I've had a most amazing time. He reached out his hand for a cigar and cut the end. But come into the smoking room. It's too long a story to tell over greasy plates. And ringing the bell in passing, he led the way to the adjoining room. You have told blank and dash and choose about the machine, he said to me, leaning back in his easy chair and naming the three new guests. But the thing's a mere paradox, said the editor. I can't argue tonight. I don't mind telling you the story, but I can't argue. I will, he went on, tell you the story of what has happened to me, if you'd like. But you must refrain from interruptions. I want to tell it, badly. Most of it will sound like lying. So be it. It's true. Every word of it all the same. I was in my laboratory at four o'clock, and since then I've lived eight days. Such days as no human being has ever lived before. I'm nearly worn out, but I shan't sleep till I've told this thing over to you. Then I shall go to bed, but no interruptions. Is it agreed? Agreed, said the editor, and the rest of us echoed agreed. And with that, the time traveller began his story, as I have set it forth. He sat back in his chair at first and spoke like a weary man. Afterwards he got more animated. In writing it down, I feel with only too much keenness the inadequacy of pen and ink, and above all, my own inadequacy, to express its quality. You read, I will suppose, attentively enough, but you cannot see the speaker's white, sincere face in the bright circle of the little lamp, nor hear the intonation of his voice. You cannot know how his expression followed the turns of his story. Most of us hearers were in the shadow, for the candles in the smoking room had not been lighted, and only the face of the journalist and the legs of the silent man from the knees downwards were illuminated. At first we glanced now and again at each other. After a time we ceased to do that and looked only at the time traveller's face. Chapter 4. Time Travelling I told some of you last Thursday of the principles of the time machine, 
and showed you the actual thing itself, incomplete in the workshop. There it is now, a little travel-worn, truly, and one of the ivory bars is cracked, and the brass rail bent, but the rest of it's sound enough. I expected to finish it on Friday, but on Friday when the putting together was nearly done, I found that one of the nickel bars was exactly one inch too short, and this I had to get remade, so that the thing was not complete until this morning. It was at ten o'clock today that the first of all time machines began its career. I gave it a last tap, tried all the screws again, put one more drop of oil on the quartz rod, and sat myself in the saddle. I suppose a suicide who holds a pistol to his skull feels much the same wonder at what will come next as I felt then. Took the starting lever in one hand, and the stopping one in the other, pressed the first, and almost immediately the second. I seemed to reel. I felt a nightmarish sensation of falling, and looking around, I saw the laboratory exactly as before. Had anything happened? For a moment, I suspected that my intellect had tricked me. Then I noted the clock. A moment before, as it seemed, it had stood at a minute or so past ten. Now it was nearly half past three. I drew a breath, set my teeth, gripped the starting lever with both hands and went off with a thud. The laboratory got hazy and went dark. Mrs. Watchett came in and walked, apparently without seeing me, towards the garden door. I suppose it took her a minute or so to traverse the place, but to me she seemed to shoot across the room like a rocket. I pressed the lever over to its extreme position. Night came like turning out of a lamp, and in another moment came tomorrow. The laboratory grew faint and hazy, then fainter, and even fainter still. Tomorrow night came black, then day again, night again, day again, faster and faster still. An eddying murmur filled my ears, and a strange, dumb confusedness descended on my mind. I am afraid I cannot convey the peculiar sensations of time-travelling. They are excessively unpleasant. There is a feeling exactly like that one has upon a switchback, of a helpless headlong motion. I felt the same horrible anticipation, too, of an imminent smash. As I put on pace, night followed day like the flapping of a black wing. The dim suggestion of the laboratory seemed presently to fall away from me, and I saw the sun hopping swiftly across the sky, leaping it every minute, and every minute marking a day. I suppose the laboratory had been destroyed, and I had come into open air. I had a dim impression of scaffolding, but I was already going too fast to be conscious of any moving things. The slowest snail that ever crawled dashed past too fast for me. The twinkling succession of darkness and light was excessively painful to the eye. Then, in the intermittent darkness, I saw the moon spinning swiftly through her quarters from new to full, and had a faint glimpse of circling stars. Presently, as I went on, still gaining velocity, the palpitation of night and day merged into one continuous greyness. The sky took on a wondrous deepness of blue, a splendid luminous colour like that of early twilight. The jerking sun became a streak of fire, a brilliant arc in space. The moon, a fainter fluctuating band, and I could see nothing of the stars save now and then a brighter circle flickering in the blue. The landscape was misty and vague. I was still on the hillside upon which this house now stands, and the shoulder rose above me grey and dim. I saw trees growing, 
and changing like puffs of vapor, now brown, now green, they grew, spread, shivered, and passed away. Saw huge buildings rise up faint and fair and pass like dreams. The whole surface of the earth seemed to change, melting and flowing under my eyes. The little hands upon the dials that registered my speed raced around faster and faster. Presently, I noted that the sun belt swayed up and down from solstice to solstice in a minute or less, and that consequently my pace was over a year a minute, and minute by minute the white snow flashed across the world and vanished, and was followed by the bright brief green of spring. The unpleasant sensations at the start were less poignant now. They merged into a kind of hysterical exhilaration. I remarked, indeed, a clumsy swaying of the machine for which I was unable to account. But my mind was too confused to attend to it, so with a kind of madness growing upon me, I flung myself into futurity. But presently, a fresh series of impressions grew up in my mind. A certain curiosity, and therewith, a certain dread. And so... At last they took complete possession of me. What strange developments of humanity, what wonderful advances upon our rudimentary civilization, I thought, might not appear when I came to look nearly into the dim, elusive world that raced and fluctuated before my eyes. I saw great and splendid architecture rising about me, more massive than any buildings of our time, and yet, as it seemed, built of glimmer and mist. I saw a richer green flow up the hillside and remain there, without any wintry intermission. Even through the veil of my confusion, the earth seemed very fair. And so my mind came round to the business of stopping. The peculiar risk lay in the possibility of my finding some substance in the space which I, or the machine, occupied. So long as I travelled at a high velocity through time, this scarcely mattered. I was, so to speak, attenuated was slipping like a vapour through the undersees of intervening substances. But to come to a stop involved the jamming of myself, molecule by molecule, into whatever lay in my way, meant bringing my atoms into such intimate contact with those of the obstacle that a profound chemical reaction, possibly a far-reaching explosion, would result and blow myself and my apparatus out of all possible dimensions into the unknown. This possibility had occurred to me again and again while I was making the machine, but then I had cheerfully accepted it as an unavoidable risk, one of the risks a man has got to take. Now the risk was inevitable. I no longer saw it in the same cheerful light. The fact is, insensibly, the absolute strangeness of everything, the sickly jarring and swaying of the machine, above all the feeling of prolonged falling, had absolutely upset my nerves. I told myself that I could never stop, and with a gust of petulance, I resolved to stop forthwith. Like an impatient fool, I lugged over the lever, and incontinently the thing went reeling over, and I was flung headlong through the air. There was the sound of a clap of thunder in my ears. I may have been stunned for a moment. Pitiless hail was hissing around me, and I was sitting on soft turf in front of the overset machine. Everything still seemed grey but presently I remarked that the confusion in my ears was gone. I looked round me. I was on what seemed to be a little lawn in a garden, surrounded by rhododendron bushes, and I noticed that their more than purple blossoms were dropping in a shower under the beating of the hailstones. Their rebounding, 
dancing hail hung in a little cloud over the machine and drove along the ground like smoke. In a moment I was wet to the skin. Fine hospitality, said I, to a man who has travelled innumerable years to see you. Presently I thought what a fool I was to get wet. I stood up and looked round me. A colossal figure, carved apparently in some white stone, loomed indistinctly beyond the rhododendrons, through the hazy downpour, but all else of the world was invisible. My sensations would be hard to describe. As the columns of hail grew thinner, I saw the white figure more distinctly. It was very large, for a silver birch tree touched its shoulder. It was of white marble, in shape something like a winged sphinx, but the wings, instead of being carved vertically at the sides, were spread out so it seemed to hover. The pedestal, it appeared to me, was of bronze, and thick with vertigrees. It chanced that the face was towards me, the sightless eyes seemed to watch me, and there was the faint shadow of a smile on the lips. It was greatly weather-worn, and that imparted an unpleasant suggestion of disease. I stood, looking at it for a little space, half a minute perhaps, or half an hour. It seemed to advance and to recede as the hail drove before it, denser or thinner. At last I tore my eyes from it for a moment, and saw that the hail curtain had worn threadbare, and that the sky was lightening with the promise of the sun. I looked up again at the crouching white shape, and the full temerity of my voyage suddenly came upon me. What might appear when that hazy curtain was altogether withdrawn? What if, in this interval, the race has lost its manliness, and had developed into something inhuman, unsympathetic, and overwhelmingly powerful? I might seem like some old-world savage animal, only the more dreadful and disgusting for our common likeness, a foul creature to be incontinently slain. I already saw other vast shapes, huge buildings with intricate parapets and tall columns, with a wooded hillside dimly creeping in upon me, through the lessening storm. I was seized with a panic fear. I turned frantically to the time machine and strove hard to readjust it. As I did so, the shafts of the sun smote through the thunderstorm. The grey downpour was swept aside and vanished like trailing garments of a ghost. Above me, the intense blue of the summer sky and some faint brown shreds of cloud whirled into nothingness. The great buildings about me stood out clear and distinct, shining with the wet of the thunderstorm, and picked out in white by the unmelted hailstones piled along their courses. I felt naked in a strange world. I felt as perhaps a bird may feel in the clear air, knowing the hawk wings above and will swoop. My fear grew to frenzy. I took breathing space, set my teeth, and again grappled fiercely, wrist and knee with the machine. It gave under my desperate onset and turned over. It struck my chin violently. One hand on the saddle, the other on the lever, I stood panting heavily in attitude to mount again. But with this recovery of a prompt retreat, my courage recovered. I looked more curiously and less fearfully at this world of the remote future. In a circular opening, High up in the wall of the nearer house, I saw a group of figures clad in soft, rich robes. They had seen me, and their faces were directed towards me. Then, 
I heard voices approaching me, coming through the bushes by the white sphinx, where the heads and shoulders of men running. One of these emerged in a pathway leading straight to the little lawn upon which I stood with my machine. He was a slight creature, perhaps four feet in height, clad in a purple tunic, griddled at the waist with a leather belt. Sandals or buskins, I could not clearly distinguish which, were on his feet. His legs were bare to the knees, and his head was bare. Noticing that, I noticed for the first time how warm the air was. He struck me as being a very beautiful, graceful creature, but indescribably frail. His flushed face reminded me of the more beautiful kind of consumptive, that hectic beauty of which we used to hear so much. At the sight of him, I suddenly regained confidence. I took my hands from the machine. That concludes our tale for this week, my friend. Please return next week, and we will continue our journey through the Time Machine by H.G. Wells. If you wish to rest some more, please find a space that suits you. Whether you curl up by the fire, partake in some food and beverages in our kitchen, take a nap in one of our many rooms, or take a stroll around the garden, please know, you're always welcome at Sniper's Rest, my friend. If you are continuing your journey, the multiverse has some treats for you today. To the north, you will be able to catch a shuttle to the Citadel and immerse yourself in the wonders of alien cultures. Or if Citadel life doesn't suit you, you can catch a ship through the relay to anywhere in the known universe. To the west, you'll head off into the Borderlands. You'll be greeted by Skags and Psychos. Don't forget to bring your shield and a big ass gun. Oh, and if you're going that way, say hi to TK for me. To the east, you'll head to the Capital Wasteland in search of your missing father. Don't forget to go to the scrapyard northeast of the vault. I know a good friend that waits there for you. Tell him he's the bestest boy for me. And if you are making your own way out there, good luck my friend, wherever you end up. Wherever you come from, and wherever you're going, thank you for spending some time here with us at Sniper's Rest. Remember to take care of yourself, be kind to others, hydrate, take a moment to look out into the world and marvel at how incredible it all is. How incredible you are, friend. Until next time, please take care on your way.